You're listening to a 95 BFM podcast. From our studio to yours, it's Various Artists with Francis and Liam. Aha himani e tēnā koutou katoa, ko Liam Toku Ingoa. Ko Francis Toku Ingoa, no mai, haere mai ki Various Artists mō wiki. Welcome along to Various Artists. My name is Francis. And my name is Liam. We will be with you for the next hour. This is your guide to the big wide art world of Tamaki Makoto and beyond for this week. How are you doing today, Liam? Very good. It's been a very, very rainy morning, which despite the fact that I probably walked into the station about like four five hours ago, I can still smell my very wet jeans and I'm not very pleased about them. <laughs> yes, and you'll be surprised to hear that we don't have any hair dryers kicking around the station. So. Someone please get a B card or donate to BFM so we can buy a hair dryer. Or, or we could just like not walk in the rain alternatively. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> anyway, should we get into the show? Yeah, what have we got coming up? If I can, coming up on the show, we'll kick off with a live chat with Aiko Olikan about his show Believe in the Journey, a duo exhibition with Grace Crothel, which is opening on Karangahape Road next week. I had a chat to Jasmine Rose Phillips about their show Their Feet Did Not Touch the Ground, a performance art piece based around record conversations with detained refugee Fahad Bandesh. I speak to a award-winning author Catherine Chigdi about her new psychological thriller Pet. I also had a chat with Johanna Cosgrove about her bonkers new stand-up comedy show High Delusion. And finally, we have your art guide for Tamaki Makoto this week. He aha ofakaro, we would love to hear your thoughts on any of these pieces, so please get in touch to Kupato Hima. You can text us on 5395 or Waimairane, give us a call in studio on 309-3879. Also, after the show, koea e wariwari e ahi ana koutou te whakarongo ke ene kōrero ano he pakihere roki roki maronga i te pae tukutuku o Ererangi Poho. Mea haere ki 95bfm.com. Let's get into it. Yeah, yeah, let's get into it. <laughs> Only positive critiques. Honest. Various artists. Joining us first up in the studio today is artists Aiko Olikan, one half of the show Believe in the Journey. It's a duo exhibition with Ototahi-based artist Grace Crothel. The show addresses Disney Pixar's changing literary landscape. It slips into bleached, frozen, yes, that's the movie, aesthetic voids, and taps into enchantment and the loss of it. Kia ora Aiko, it's great to have you in the studio. How are you doing today? Doing great, thank you. Hey, let's start by talking about your and Grace's collaborative creative relationship. How did you come to know each other and what has led to this show? Christchurch is quite a small place and I think Grace and I just started getting coffee together pretty much every week out of artistic boredom. And almost immediately actually, it's probably two years ago, I started working on this show and started talking about Disney and started talking about um, Elsa and the evolution of Disney, where that was going, just from an aesthetic standpoint of how it's changing. And I think we both felt like there's something kind of weird and funny there that interested us mm. and the weird texture of Frozen as like an aesthetic, like CGI artwork it was so strange to us. And we kind of tapped into it for something and just talked about it for like two years. And then um, I kind of pulled it all together this year to actually get the work out and have a show. Mm. And Disney, Pixar, are those films that you both grew up watching or something that you came to later in life? Well, this is the, the joy of it is that Grace is eight years older than me. So we grew up with a different relationship to Disney. 
And she grew up, grew up what she calls the, the Renaissance, which is Disney's period, like late 80s to late 90s, when they were making um, like the Hans Christian Andersen films and stuff um, as, as a separate thing to, in by 2013, Frozen, that's kind of my generation and, and all like, like Happy Feet or something or mm. those like weird Barbie movies they made that I watched through my sister. Yeah. So we're like subject to like different um, landscapes. Yeah, interesting. So, so I guess there's two sides to the show. Yes, it's a, a collaborative show, but you're showing quite different work. Let's talk first about Grace's work, um, an aesthetic study of this changing landscape. What exactly is Grace exhibiting? It's just an art show. It's just um, some sculpture, and um, the way Grace goes about it is, I think she um, kind of amasses like this this very large like relational installation of all these elements in a room which sort of like reconstruct space or our space and in the past that's often been like the pentecostal church or um other subject matter but but this time it's disney and so that space is um constructed kind of in minecraft actually in this space because there's a there's a, a weird crossover with frozen and minecraft i think we both found really funny and and interesting and um in, but, in terms of like the built built world yeah 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 um, it's 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 um esoteric. Um, it's good. Um, so that's Grace's work, and then I'm just offering digital digital photographs, mm-hmm. and that's kind of my medium of choice, and that's um, the two things to bring together. And the beautiful thing, beautiful thing about it is that it started like so frozen intensive, and that was kind of this just this weird um, culture item that got us excited. But I think it's actually not like a terrific amount of frozen. Or even Renaissance Disney, like left in this show. It's, okay. it's kind of carved into something else. And hopefully we've taken like everything inside um, those children's movies that interested us and like kind of washed away the fat and like found something that's like that is really interesting and true and like sticky about them. Mm. And and let's talk about your work specifically, the photographs you're exhibiting. Um, they're both digital and found. So what does your photographic practice look like? specifically in the lead up to this show well it was two years so I feel like I kind of made this body of work um first with by photographing Frozen and then I did that and then I sort of waited another year <laughs> and I got bored again and I didn't feel like um I was being as, as brave as I could be about it or I, or I also felt like by this point I developed my photographic practice enough that I had something else to say um or that I could say what I wanted to say about Frozen in a without having to point to it directly. And that's what I tried to do. And so, but I just take pictures every week and I plan them and I carry my camera everywhere. And um, I pick them up if I find them on the street, like this one found image in the show. And I pick the five best ones every week, whatever, and I put them in a folder and then I keep going. And then when it comes time for the show, you get them out of the box and you pick the five best ones out of, the five best ones out of the week for a year. Yes, okay. And then, um, you've got a show. Mm. And how important do you think the conversation between yourself and Grace has been? Like, do you think you would have been able to interrogate Disney as far as you have through these works or come to this place without having her alongside you as a conversation partner? No. Um, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a really, really been about the conversation. Mm. Absolutely. Um, we've definitely, like, beyond interrogated Disney, we've, like, just, like, taken... Yeah, we've just completely defiled Disney. I think we've just been... There's really no corner left untouched. Um, I don't know why. 
I don't know why we did that. I don't know why we took Disney and just talked about it every week for two mm. years, but we did. And yeah, and something I mean, interesting came out yeah, of it. Yeah, so much of creative practice is taking those threads and just following them yeah. um, until something comes out. Hey, and let's talk about the, the exhibition space. So you're showing it up on Karangahape Road, mm. um, right on the corner there of East Street and Karangahape. Mm. How do you envision that? It's showing for four days? Five days. Five days. Yeah. Um, how do you envision people interacting with the space or coming to encounter the works? I think initially very drunkenly and hopefully very um, closely packed. So that'd be nice. At the opening? Yes. Yep. Maybe. And then after that, we'll see in the carnage, when the, you know, when the carnage has fallen away the next day, we'll mm. see how they actually interact in space. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's what we're setting up on the, the installation. And Grace's work is just so spatial that it'll be, we've got like, I think we've had dedicated pretty much two days actually to setting up the space because, mm. which is, you know, a big chunk of the time we have at the space because it's so important how that, that you know carries out. And, and that space has quite large open windows, so will passers-by be able to see inside? I hope so. Inside? I wish I could tell you more, but I just saw the space and I was like, that looks good enough to me. Okay, and I great. desperately, desperately well, called the landlord and I was like, please, please, please. <laughs> so... Well, listeners will have to head along uh, yeah. to see the show for themselves. Where can they go to do that? When is the show opening? The show is opening on the 23rd June next Friday at 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. And then it's open for five days. Yeah, is that five that? days to Tuesday? I think so. Yeah, Tuesday following Tuesday closes. Okay, great. And you're also having an artist talk at some point. Um, yes. If listeners want to come along to that, which I believe is on the 24th, um, what can they expect to hear? Um, it'll be more interesting than this because the artist talk is really because Grace makes such complex work great. and Grace wants to talk about it. And Grace is a great talker. And I think the beautiful thing about Grace's work is that she, like, takes the spirit of something and, like, embeds it in, like, the surface of an aesthetic or an object. So it'll be, like, the way that, you know, a certain chair you saw as a child kind of strikes a weird memory. You know, I'm thinking about her last show, which is about Sunday school. You know, so um, she kind of just takes these weird things that strike weird strike a chord in you in this weird way. And mm-hmm. I think when you do that, you're also it's kind of like a... It's like a minimalist process where you strip away like extra context from it. And so I think that often means that she needs to like inject that context with a text or with, with talking. Yes. Otherwise the whole show would be kind of too obvious to be beautiful or something. Mm. So um, it'd be great. And we've got a um, writer, Flo Claridge from Christchurch, who's going to um, host that for us. And she's, oh, great. Um, yeah, she's great. Cool. Oh, we'll definitely make sure that you get along to that. Thank you so much, Aiko, for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it's so fun to watch you make radio. <laughs> well, it's, it's very so good. Fun I was very impressed radio. by the buttons. Yeah, there's a lot of buttons. I know you can't see off here, but um, they're all it is shiny. And they're I always all thought it would colors. be impressive until I came on the radio, and it is impressive. Oh, I can thanks. tell listeners. Um, we are going to get into a song. Uh, Liam, what are we listening to? Coming up next, we have 245 uh, in parentheses, Getting Old by KMTP. This is off their brand new album coming up in late dis- late September. Um, and it's great. And you should all tune in to it now as you play it on the radio. Here we go. <laughs> on the big shiny buttons. <laughs>
What's a seven-letter word for street fighter? Brawler. Hey, you're right. Okay, what about treasure trunks and six? Chests. They said you were good. Hey, what's happening at Ponsonby Social Club this week? Well, tonight there's Keshia live, followed by DJs Alicia and Katya. And tomorrow, Chica Adeyason live, followed by DJs V and Soltray. Same old Ponsonby Social Club, 152 Ponsonby Road. To celebrate the hard mahi volunteers put into selflessly serving their communities, MOTAT wants to treat all volunteers to free entry. Simply head to MOTAT between the 17th and the 25th of June with some proof of your volunteer work and enjoy what MOTAT has to offer on the house. Come and celebrate National Volunteer Week with MOTAT. From the 17th to the 25th of June from 10am to 4pm. Find out more at motat.nz. 95 BFM presents Jasmine Mary live at the Hollywood Avondale Saturday, July 8th. Born to sing, Jasmine Mary finds poetic beauty in seagulls, fish, and canines like a royal darling lost in the woods. And their spectacular sophomore album, Dog, is out now. To celebrate the release that has nothing to do with dogs, they are playing live at the Hollywood with special guest Julia Deans. 95 BFM presents Jasmine Mary live at the Hollywood Avondale Saturday, July 8. Tickets from Under the Radar. What kind of music am I into? I didn't. I'm not uh, actually just into one genre. My tastes are very broad and eclectic and broad. Everything apart from country and heavy metal. That's funny because I only listen to metal. And country? No, that's a couple of shows before. The Hard, Fast and Heavy Show. show, show. Two hours of punk, hardcore, goats, doom, metal and thrash with Paddy and crew. Maybe I should go to hell, but I'm doing well. The Hard, Fast and Heavy Show. 11pm to 1am every Sunday night. Only on 95 BFM. What's it all for? Various artists.
You are on various artists with Francis and Liam. If you want to get in touch and let us know what you think about any of these two pieces, you can do so on 5395. Coming up next week at Basement Theatre, Jasmine Rose Phillips, new performance art show at Their Feet Did Not Touch the Ground is on from the 22nd to the 24th of June. The show circulates around conversations that they had with Farhad Pandesh and Simon's... Asylum Seeker, sorry, in Australia in an effort to tell his story and spread word about wrongful imprisonment of refugees. Here's my chat with Jasmine about this exhibition, about this performance piece now. So how would you describe The Feet Did Not Touch the Ground in a kind of like surface sense? So this show is based around recorded um, conversations that I had with a friend of mine, um, Fahad Bandesh. Uh, and we had these conversations over Zoom and Skype and the phone over the last few years while he was imprisoned in Australia. Um, and he was imprisoned for seeking freedom, uh, trying to move to Australia and um, and be free from war and unsafety in his country. Um, and he spent 10 years imprisoned um, by the Australian government. Um, so it's, it's, the show is based around conversations with him and it's it's him speaking about his experience in detention and and many other things do you think that this topic has been touched on much before in performance art i don't know i don't think it is talked about enough um i think that it is a global community responsibility to look after each other um i don't see it as like an isolated issue for for the government or for certain places I know that Fahad himself does a lot of um, activism for himself and his people and other and other refugees in his position. Uh, I don't think that responsibility should lie with him or other refugees. Yeah, I don't think it's talked about enough. With this project, if it started out as phone calls and Zoom calls and things like that, uh, communicating with Fahad through while he was in prison. Did this initially come to you as in, like, my friend is going through this, I'm going to talk to them consistently and see if I can... Well, he became create... a friend yeah. through this, so... Ah, I see. Um, yeah, yeah, so I've never I've never actually met Fahad because he was in, in, has been imprisoned for, like I said, 10 years, so essentially since he was a, a young man until very recently, um, he was locked away and unable to see anyone. So was it initially um, a project of you planning to turn it into a theatre piece? No. Initially, um, during one of the lockdowns, the Audio Foundation did a call out to artists to make a piece of art or a recording or a piece of music around the experience of lockdown. And I suppose I just felt um, kind of unwilling to make something around my own experience because I felt really, really lucky. I live in a really beautiful home by the sea. I was supported by the government financially. Um, I was safe. Um, and I was having a really a wonderful time. I'm sure there was challenges in there, and, and that's okay. It's not all about um, scale like that, but I suppose I saw that as an opportunity to maybe draw the connection between how people were feeling about being in their homes for a few months and the fact that this man had been um, imprisoned without medical treatment and without proper food and without love and without friendship and without people in a room for the last 10 years of his life. Like, that is such a long time. Um, Like, that's insurmountable. Like, I can't even fathom what that would look like, and I guess I saw it as an opportunity to maybe take people out of the, um, the 
just a, a little reflection about the scale of that um, compared to, you know, just spending a little bit of time at home. Was this always kind of built as a response to that maybe ill-informed thought process? No, no, and it's not a response. Like, and it has nothing to do with the pandemic or lockdown. I think that was just what inspired that on that day for that to happen. Um, at the end of the day, I've always, I, I care really, really deeply about human rights. <laughs> and I mean, as should everyone. And um, and I think the biggest human rights violation that happens in the world is to displace people seeking freedom. Mm. And I mean, when I think about, um, when I think about how to take away someone's freedom and how you really do that, how you try and do that, um, is you take away their language and you take away, um, you take away the earth, the ground, which is what the title is, because I was thinking about how Fahad and all these people were locked in this um, sort of like hotel quarters, so it's their feet literally were, were they were suspended for for years, unable to see sky, unable to feel the air, unable to, and what that um, what that can do to a person's spirit, but what it doesn't do to a person's spirit, because um, Fahad is a somehow wonderfully loving, capable, positive person. Um, yeah, and I think his story is really, really important, and I think it's really important um, for everyone to hear. So how are you kind of portraying these different phone calls through performance art? Are you directly playing the recording? The recordings are played, mm. yeah, and then there is a there is a performance art show, which I'm not going to... Um, like dot point how I perform. Like I think that you'll need to come and see the show and that's how performance art works. Um, you know, it's a, I think that it's something you need to experience and I think that it's something that speaks to our compassion and our emotions and it gets under our skin and it doesn't speak to our intellect like maybe reading about something does. It doesn't speak to our ideas like debating does. I think that's the point. I think it gets under our skin and it moves us. Um, so I'm not going to tell you what, what that looks like i'm just going to implore you to come and um come and see see the show and listen to fahad's story because he's so generously shared it and i guess within that case um for anyone who is listening that's kind of interested in this but i guess how could you how would you pitch it without giving away um the main contents of the show why do you think that it's so important for people to come and see this work i think it's important um for us as humans to listen to each other's stories um, and to listen to each other's heartbreaks and pains so we can we can all work together to get closer to healing them. And I think that uh, living in this world, there is, there is a responsibility to help each other. And I think that listening to this story can help. It can help do that. Art does that, right? It creates change. And I think, yeah. Hmm. So how long have you been working on this project specifically as a piece of performance art for? I don't know. This would this was meant to be performed as a part of the Festival of Live Art earlier this year, which got cancelled. Um, and I did share this at Tiny Festival at the Christchurch Art Gallery in February this year. So, um, but the conversations we had over the last year, so it's sort of off and on. Uh, yeah, it's been a while. Um, but I, it's not like I've been working on it for two years or anything. It's just been slowly slowly coming together over time because um, I think there's a sensitivity that needs to be taken when talking to someone about their story, you know. it's um, Like I said, it's really generous of Fahad to share it with me and it's quite a lot for him to relive those things and to talk about them with me. Mm, not really kind of wanting to rush both him or your own creative process in putting this together. No. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... 
you mentioned that this was initially going to be a part of the Festival of Live Art. Um, has the show developed or changed at all in the few months since that got cancelled? Uh, it has not. But like I said, I did share it at um, the Tiny Festival and at the Christchurch Art Gallery in February. And I'm sure, I guess, with performance art, because there's elements of improvisation and things like that within the actions that I'm doing and within the show, so that, you know, it's always going to be slightly different. Um, I think an audience makes it a, something like that quite different as well, depending on the the mood of the of the night and like the, the energy and all of that sort of thing. So it'll always be a little bit different, but um, but essentially it's remained the same. Mm. Well, I'm really excited to see this piece come to fruition finally after a few months of delays thanks to yeah. good old Auckland floods. Um, just to remind our audience, where and when can they see this piece? Uh, at the Basement Theatre next week, the opening night is the 20, Thursday the 22nd of June, and then it runs on Friday and Saturday the 23rd and 24th as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for chatting to me today, Jasmine, and for sharing Fahad's story uh, with Aotearoa and the rest of the world. It's really important work. Thank you so much. That was Jasmine Rose Phillips chatting about their new show, Their Feet Did Not Touch the Ground, that will be on from the 22nd to 24th of June at Basement Theatre from 6.30pm. You are on Various Artists with Francis and Liam. It's great to have your company. Pet is a chilling new psychological thriller from internationally best-selling author Catherine Chigdi. It came out recently on the 8th of June. Told from a single point of view so as not to show the hand of the novel's other characters, Pet is an unflinching examination of the corrosive power of guilt and the extent some people will go to cover their tracks. Because here on Various Artists we consider all creative endeavours to be art making in the broader sense and writing and art form very worthy of our time. This week I caught up with the creative mind behind Pet to hear about how it came to fruition. Here we are now. Hey, congratulations on the release of Pet, this psychological thriller that unfolds in the life of Justine. To start off with, can you give listeners an outline of the plot that doesn't give too much away? Yeah, so it's um, told from the point of view of Justine, who's a 12-year-old schoolgirl at a Catholic primary school in Wellington in 1984. And she comes into the orbit of a very glamorous, charismatic new teacher who comes to the school, Mrs. Price. And Mrs. Price plays favourites and everyone wants to be her pet. And the story takes kind of darker and darker turns as it unfolds. A thief begins to target the school and everyone's looking at everyone else askance. And um, from there on, it gets pretty twisty and, yeah, much darker. It's also partly told there are flashes in um, 1984 of Justine as an adult looking back on that time and kind of trying to figure out how it all unfolded. What inspired you to write this story and to bring it into the life of Justine? So uh, when I was at a Catholic primary school in Wellington in the 1980s, there was a, a really charismatic, glamorous um, teacher who was only at the school for about nine months, but in my memory, she looms much, much larger than that. Uh, she was actually my sister's teacher, but, you know, as in the book, we all desperately wanted the golden light of her favour to fall on us. I mean, she looked like Olivia Newton-John, and she 
drove an American sports car and we just thought that, you know, she was this kind of magical, otherworldly creature that we wanted to be, really. She was, you know, the, the shining example of what we could become as we grew into um, grew into our own bodies, I suppose. So I took that figure as a jumping off point for this story, but I should say that I made all the all the really dark stuff up. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes, I'm sure she'd be pleased to know that. When you sit down to write, obviously you have this springboard of this real-life teacher character from from your own life, but how do you pull together your picture of all the other characters and flesh those out through your process? Yeah, I think it is really important to make sure that every character in a piece of writing feels three-dimensional, and not to kind of be writing, I don't know, cardboard cutout characters. So I think for me, it's always really vital to focus in on a palpable sense of place and the things that populate that place. So, you know, this is set in 1984. I I looked back um, to my own childhood and remembered all the things, the objects that were important to me at that age and at that time and fed those into the story. So so the things that are stolen when the thief targets the school are all those little objects that are really important to children, like, you know, someone's Smurfs from their Smurf collection or a Care Bears pencil case or, you know, particular markers or... I don't know, a, a scarf that someone's knit and, knitted for themselves. All of those things that in themselves aren't worth very much, but to children they're, they're kind of charms, they're talismans, and, and um, they have a, a huge value for children. So there's a lot about physical objects in the book and what they mean to us and how they can define who we are. And that was really how I brought that period and those characters who are attached to those things to life. And Mrs. Price has her own things that are really important to her and that identify who she is. So, you know, the the white Corvette that she drives, for instance, or the the particular clothes that she wears. Um, There's one scene when a group of favoured girls go to her house on the weekend and, you know, they, they eat fudge and they listen to records and then they... They dress her up in um, these um, up-to-the-minute, really fashionable clothes from 1984 that make her look like a model and make her look like who they want to be. So it's it's kind of a transgressive scene. It's something that would never be allowed to happen now. But I'm talking about the 1980s when those sorts of things could still happen, and that was another reason why I really wanted to write a book in that time. Um, it was a time when it, it felt like... As a country, we were still quite innocent, but things were also on the cusp of of changing too. Mm. Yeah, and we'll talk about some of those themes that you do pick up on quite strongly throughout the book. But let's talk about this character of Justine. She's certainly not a cardboard cutout, as you put it. There's so many layers to her life, um, which we come to understand in the first chapter, but they only expand as the story evolves and takes its dark turns. When you're sitting down to write and holding this entire plot in your head, how do you hold all of those complexities of a character's life together and ensure that they're maintained through the book? <laughs> um, post-it notes. <laughs> I, I actually do um, 
usually keep track of the kind of the, the various plot lines in a book by writing just tiny little one sentence or even one word summaries of scenes on post-it notes and sticking them to the wall of my office as I go along. But I also keep a timeline file, you know, what was happening in New Zealand at that particular time that I need to kind of at least touch on in the book. I keep character files so that I know um, what the timeline of a particular character's life is and the important events for them. So, for instance, Justine, um, she's 12 in the book. The year before the story takes place, her mother has died. That's not a, a, not a spoiler because we know that right from the start. Her mother has died of cancer and so she is you know, getting along with her life as best she can with her father. She's an only child and the two of them are really um, trying to emerge from that year of deep grieving so that when Mrs Price arrives on the scene, she's someone that Justine immediately latches onto as a kind of mother figure um, as well as other things. The, the kind of complicating thing for Justine too is that she has seizures, she has epilepsy, and um, they, they've come back. Uh, and she loses her memory around the time of the seizure, which is quite common that in the period immediately before and immediately after a seizure, a person often can't remember what happened. And so that adds a layer of uncertainty to the story. The whole thing is narrated from Justine. All that the reader has is Justine's version of events, and she proves herself to be um, potentially unreliable. Which makes makes for some complex unpacking for readers as they try and yeah, sift through what might be truth and what's not. Let's talk about this, I guess, sort of nostalgic world building that you do through the objects, but also this really conscious attention to New Zealand at the time. Obviously, New Zealand had and still does have very complex social issues, um, which you highlight in the book, particularly around racism and misogyny. How have you woven those themes through the novel? So Justine's best friend at school is Amy, who's um, the daughter of Chinese New Zealanders, and she is the target of racism um, at the school. And I was, you know, unfortunately drawing on my own memories of primary school um, for those scenes and remembering the kind of the casual sort of throwaway comments that um, were hurled across the playground at certain children. So, yeah, that was, you know, drawing on my own memory of that time. I'd, I'd like to think it's better now. I don't know. Yeah, I think it still happens, unfortunately. But Amy is um, one of the ostracised children, one of the children who is never going to be Mrs Price's pet. And Mrs Price really is someone who's quite attuned to the undercurrents in the classroom and in the playground and can zero in on which child is the most unpopular and amplify that in quite a disturbing way. <clears throat> so that's one kind of one of the larger themes in the book is looking at that everyday racism that was rife um at school in the 1980s. And the other one, yeah, misogyny. I realised when I set the book when I did that in 1983, Lorraine Downs had been crowned Miss Universe. And in 1984, she passed the crown on to her successor. And it just 
took me right back to watching those beauty pageants, Miss Universe, Miss World, um, Miss New Zealand, with my dad and remembering sitting there in our living room and just horribly critiquing the bodies of the women who were paraded across the screen. And I, I kind of didn't think anything of it at the time. It was just, you know, I was just hanging out with Dad. It was something kind of fun that we did together. But actually thinking about it as an adult, it's quite disturbing. And that's where I was learning how to critique my own body and mm. what the ideal woman should look like. And so I used that particular scene in the novel as well, Justine watching um, Miss Universe with her dad and being brutal, the two of them being absolutely brutal about the contestants and then um, Mrs Price joining them as well and, and being crueler ever than they were. So, yeah, that was one way of, of kind of weaving in the misogyny of the time um, in a really... In, in a way that felt really current and relevant to that particular period. Yeah, and, and there's other moments through the novel as well of maybe two or three sentences of these moments of, oh, I guess, ick while you're reading them, of like, ooh, we wouldn't say that now, but extraordinary, yeah, that they slot so easily into the time that you were writing in back then. Unfortunately, my chat with Catherine was cut off prematurely, um, but that was Catherine Chiggy, author of the new novel Pet, which is out now, uh, probably wherever you get your books, your local bookstore. She is a New Zealand author, uh, so do get amongst that. Oh, don't suffer for your art chat. Various artists with Francis and Liam. Another awesome show is on next week at Basement Theatre. Johanna Cosgrove's stand-up show High Delusion is running once again after a sold-out run last month. This is depicted as a casual descent into the void. It is hilarious, dark, sexy, and it is fantastic. I had a chat with her yesterday about the work and how it came together. Here's that chat now. Uh, my name is Johanna Cosgrove, and I'm a comedian and a writer... And yeah, <laughs> nice. I, used to have a, I used to have a, I used to do the theatre segment on BFM, so you might remember me. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so you've got your new show, newish show, I suppose, High Delusion, um, coming up very soon at Basement Theatre. How would you pitch this show to a newcomer? So it's ne- it opens next week on the twentieth of June. Um, how would I pitch this show? It is. At, I think in the blurb we describe it as like a dark hilariously dark spiral into the void and that's probably how I would picture it. it's like when I started making the show I wanted to make a show that was both funny and genuinely hot <laughs> and so um, I think hopefully we've succeeded doing that I, I mean it's definitely the, I really am happy with all the jokes but um, yeah it's pretty full-on it's pretty <laughs> cursed vibes but also it's done with like a lot of love and a lot and like a big smile. It's not for the faint-hearted, I suppose, but also like hopefully there's some truth in there hmm. for the audience. How long has the show been in the works for? So I made the show for Comedy Fest, and as you guys might know, Comedy Fest has kind of had a rough ride during the pandemic. So I made a show in 2017 called Auntie that I toured around for a couple of years, and then in 2020 I was about to make another comedy show called The Gig, and then Comedy Fest was cancelled. We all went into lockdown. And so I think some stuff from High Delusion is actually from that show. So I guess a version of the show has been kind of brewing for a few years, which feels really nice. It now feels like the exact right time for me to bring it into the world, which feels really good. And I have an amazing director who is just chef's fucking kiss, Jess Joy Wood. She's 
absolute best. Is three years usually the amount of time that you would spend on a show like this? No, not at all. It's only just circumstantial because the world's been shut down. <laughs> and you mentioned uh, working with Jess Joywood on the show. What has that working relationship yeah. been like? So she's so my day job is I'm a, I'm a writer for Shortland Street. I'm on the storylining table, and Jess is the head writer. So she's also my boss, <laughs> and that's been amazing because we can, we can keep a similar schedule. The process looks like me going to Jess's house, being like, these are my, all my ideas for jokes. And then we drink some wine and then we just try and make each other laugh and like fix the jokes until they make us laugh the most. I don't know if I can ask so, this, but does that have any effect on the actual content of Shortland Street? Kind of like working with her so closely on this within two different projects of kind of very different tones? No, because there's a lot of people in the Shortland Street machine. Hmm. So everyone brings their whole self to work all the time. So and I've been on the table for over a year, so it kind of like their vibe was already seeping into the cracks of Shortland Street, you know? In the description that you guys have for this, on the Comedy Fest site, it's kind of written as like part stand-up, part sketch, and 100% stunning. Um, would you Absolutely. say... Yeah, of course. <laughs> How much of this would you say is like a character that you're trying to portray? Do you think that it's like a part of yourself within the person that you're portraying within this, or is it very just kind of like taking up an entirely different role as i mean you came from uh, acting sort of drama school background so how is this manifested in itself yeah i mean it means that, like anything i make will ha absolutely be theatrical and have big theatrical moments in it which the show does have but i was really conscious that i wanted to make a show that wasn't um a classic character comedy so obviously it's not just me johanna as i am chatting to you right now like in bed Patting a dog, like <laughs> it's like it's a performance, and there's a there's an elevation to the vo like the voice or the the persona that you see on stage. But it's pretty. I wanted to make a more classically stand up show, and inadvertently have just had to put and or classic always ended up putting um big theater moments in there, <laughs> and a little bit of it's a tiny little bit of sketches, not really, but it's definitely not a character comedy for sure. How has this show sort of developed since it was kind of originally concepted within, it's concept, conceptualised within the gig back those few years ago? Has it changed a lot or is there still some core elements oh, where you're like, yeah, this is the, the same show? The gig was only, like, we had barely started making that and I was at the time making it with an awesome comedian called Tessa Waters. And I think there's one, there's one joke that we wrote for the gig that has carried through into High Delusion, but... The cons and maybe a few little seeds have kind of come through, but essentially this show, I started writing it this year, and it's it's the material is fresh, except for that one gig because I just love that gig so much, and it's it's like the final piece of the show. It's perfect. Done. He I've done actually quite a few lineups this year, which mm. has been really awesome for me. Like to to, it's fucking hard, man. Doing a tight five is really really difficult. There's a whole craft around it. Um, but it's been really awesome to kind of throw myself more into the comedy community. And so that feels real nice and I'm learning heaps and everyone's so talented and awesome. And I think New Zealand comedy is in a really cool place at the moment. How are you feeling ahead of this run of High Delusion? Because it's not the first time that it's run, has it? There was like a short run in May as well? Yeah, it actually was really recent. Mm. <laughs> I did it, so I opened it. Um, in the Comedy Fest, literally like three or four weeks ago, 
we did a, a week in Auckland, which was completely sold out, and then we did a week in Wellington, which also sold really well. I've had two weeks off, and now we're doing it again. So it's like straight back onto pretty, the stage. Pretty straight back, which is actually really cool for me because it's like, oh, now I've run the show and I can fiddle with some bits and I get to do it again, which is really exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting having such a short period of time to run through things again because there are examples within Aotearoa of shows running twice, but it's usually got like at least a good couple of months between them where this is like very quick getting back into it. Do you think that that's been a privilege or has it been kind of hard to be like, okay, what can I change? Shit, shit, shit. How do I make everything better? It's totally a privilege and it kind of takes the pressure off a little bit because you're like, oh, it's a marathon, not a sprint and I've got more time to sink my teeth into the show and because it's all like I feel like you learn so much more about a show when you put it in front of an audience especially comedy because it's like that's where you figure out how to really land the joke or fix the joke like just again and again in front of an audience every night um so it's it was great for me I was so lucky that they were like the basement very awesomely when they sold when we sold out they were like do you want to come back in a few weeks and do the whole show again and I was like absolutely do you have any other future projects that people should be kind of on the lookout for so I have a podcast with my bestie Sam Tikani it's called Rats in the Gutter um you might have might have seen us around and also you might not have (laughs) um but please give it a listen we're really proud we just we've just finished almost recording season three which is really cool obviously give Shorten Street a watch um, and then I've got some really exciting things in the pipeline, but I can't talk about them. How can people uh, go to see High Delusion? It'll be, it's at the basement from the 20th of June to the 24th of June, and tickets are available on the basement website. That was Johanna Gosgro chatting about High Delusion, her stand-up show, on next week at Basement Theatre from 20th to the 24th of June. What time is it, Liam? It's time for the Art Guide. It's the 95 BFM Art Guide on various artists. It's paintings in that. I really want to shout out uh, uh, production guy Jules for playing to my wishes and giving us a nice little Twin Peaks in the back of this. <laughs> I very strongly appreciate it. Your wish, our command, or Jules' command. <laughs> Ramaday, Friday the 16th of June. Tonight, the Winter Poetry Fest is on at the Point Chef Community Centre. Plus, next week, there will be more at various libraries across the city. I had a chat to some of the organisers on the Bcast a few weeks back, if you want to learn more about that. Also opening tonight at Tuura Gallery is Georgina Hobie Scott's solo exhibition, Where I've Been, that opens at 5pm. And finally opening tonight is Dirty Work and Ode to Joy at Hugh Theatre, a new project from Indian Ink Productions that will be on next this Salamone, 16th of June, and continue on until the 2nd of July. Raharoi, Saturday the 17th of June, Weeding Show is an imaging runway show featuring Taylor Grove's garments. That's her last show in Aotearoa for the foreseeable future, and it's showing in Greylin at 3.30, with their location to be shared via social media soon. Also, tomorrow at Kakano, uh, Kakano Gallery in Henderson, thanks to Youth Arts Collective, is the Pimp My Spray Can workshop for Rangatahi. And that one's free. Closing this Ratapu Sunday, the 18th of June, is Ritual, showcasing work from Afro-Kiwi artists based across the Motu. You can catch this exhibition for the last time at Caretaker's Cottage in Albert Park. Also, on Sunday, as well as Rahina Monday, 
Marama in the Darkness with the Uen, uh, excuse me, Uenuku will be open at Seasons Gallery from 11 till 3pm showcasing work from Jade Townsend. And of course we had a chat to a couple of artists with shows at Basement Theatre this week. Johanna Cosgrove's stand-up show High Delusion will be on at 8pm from uh, to Tuesday the 20th to Ahroi uh, Saturday the 24th next week. And just before then on those nights will be Jasmine Rose Phillips. Their feet did not touch the ground from 6.30pm from the 22nd to the 24th. That is the art guide for this week. That was the 95BFM art guide. Hey, we are running fast to the end of the show, but before we go, uh, we have a little bit of Norwegian space disco, which I've been listening to. Lovely.
that was Cockning by Bjorn Torske, I think would be my pronunciation of that Norwegian space disco. I hope you enjoyed that. That does bring us to the end of the show on Various Artists, so we'll get into saying our goodbyes. Various Artists with Francis and Liam. That's all for us on Various Artists for today. Thank you to everyone who chatted with us. A big thanks to Aiko Olikan and Catherine Chigdi. As well as Johanna Gosgrove and Jasmine Rose Phillips. Thanks so much for tuning in. Remember, you can listen back to all those chats and more at 95bfm.com. Kahoki, my matoa atere wiki. Next up is Land of the Good Groove. You are listening to 95BFM. That was a 95BFM podcast. Support 95BFM with a B-card. Go to 95BFM.com slash sign up.